Hello, and welcome back to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. Hello, and welcome back. I am so glad to be back here recording. I just came from visiting one of my best friends in her hometown of Buffalo, New York, a week or so ago. And I don't know about y'all, but I've never experienced a real fall season. And I was so excited to see the leaves and their brilliant shades of red and gold. And I was not disappointed. Buffalo was an exciting city full of fun shops and great food and really gorgeous vistas at Niagara Falls. And of course, the countryside, the scenery of Western New York. We even went apple picking and I fed a horse, which, you know, from Texas, you'd think I'd fed a horse before, but I certainly had not. And um, it was really, really fun. I can't wait to go back maybe more in the summer because I was not prepared for what 50 degrees feels like in Buffalo versus 50 degrees in Houston because the two are not the same. So uh, the first day there, I had to like borrow some really heavy woolen socks and I think a, a shirt or something too, maybe a hat. It was the whole thing. I was not totally prepared. Like my warm weather clothes for Texas were not enough. Um, but then it kind of heated up a little bit in the middle of the trip. So it got better. And by the time I was leaving, I was used to it. And I was like, oh, I really like this place. I love all the houses because they look like old Victorians. And it's like every single one of them. So all of it was just super awesome. So I have nothing but lovely things to say about Buffalo. But I will say that there was something sinister lurking beneath the surface, which you do find in any city that you go to that has a past, which is like any city for the most part. But... I was able to kind of indulge this because my friend treated me to a ghost tour put on by Joel at Buffalo Double Decker Bus Tours. And he was amazing. He was so much fun to listen to. We met at the silos instead of the Double Decker Bus just because it was cold. But um, it's also Halloween, so that's when the, the ghost tour was taking place. And he was just fantastic. I mean, it was an incredibly fun and interesting tour. But... During that tour, Joel told the quick story of Henri Marchand and the murder of Clotilde Marchand. And y'all, it was a doozy. So I knew I had to research it. I had to come back here and put in the work and see what exactly had happened. Uh, from my friend's history of it, I knew that this was something that was real, obviously. I mean, that's one thing I do is debunk fake stories, especially during ghost tours, but this one was very real. And I want to get into it. But first, let's talk about Buffalo. And it's a land about as contentious as any Texas town or really any boom town. Buffalo was settled by the Seneca and Iroquois tribes for a thousand years before any other settlers came to it. And there's still a heavy tribal presence in the city today. And when referring to them going forward, I won't use the name Seneca or Iroquois after this portion. Instead, I'll use the name that they refer to themselves with. And for Seneca, that is Onondowaga, or Great Hill People. And for Iroquois, it is Hodinoshoni, which again, I could completely be getting this wrong. Please let me know. Um, but I want to give them that credit not to refer to them. Uh, by the names that were given to them. So the name Buffalo 
didn't come from the many bison roaming its lands. In fact, I can't see that there were ever any bison there at all, uh, other than the statues that are everywhere in Buffalo. As far as history can tell, the name came from a mispronunciation of the French name for it, Beaufleuve, which means beautiful river. And the river is indeed still rugged, majestic, powerful, and of course, beautiful. I mean, it leads into Niagara Falls. It's going to be all of those things. So I definitely get that. Now, the city of Buffalo where our story takes place, began as a boomtown, but calling it that diminishes its importance as a hub for trade and even political importance throughout the years. It was the site of battles between England, Canada, and the U.S. during the War of 1812, and became an important cog in the machine during the Industrial Revolution. It was also the site of the Pan-American Exposition, which is much like the World's Fair, It became then known as the City of Light. And it was known that way because of the hydroelectric power used, powered by Niagara Falls, just saying, pretty cool, uh, used to light the city streets. So this was a big deal at the time. Unfortunately, during that same Pan-American exposition, it also became known as the assassination site of President William McKinley. In fact, it's the assassination that ties my friend and I together to the city. We found this out at a tour of the Buffalo History Museum. President McKinley was assassinated on her birthday, and his murderer was then executed 45 days later on mine, which was last Saturday. Theodore Roosevelt was sworn in while still in Buffalo, and Presidents Fillmore and Cleveland, Grover Cleveland, I always loved his name, also came from Buffalo. In the years leading up to 1930, it seemed like nothing could stop the City of Lights. Even the Great Depression, which began on October 24th, 1929, when the stock market crashed, didn't affect Buffalo the same way it affected other cities. Buffalo, as in times before this, stepped up to the plate and lived up to its other name, the City of Good Neighbors. Which is why on March 6th, 1930, when Henri Marchand Jr. left his house screaming for help because his mom was dead, people swooped in and helped. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's start with the Marchand family. Henri and his wife, Clotilde Jouel Marchand, that's her maiden name, Jouel, Marchand emigrated to New York from France in the early 1900s to pursue their work as artists. Clotilde was a painter and a somewhat obscure one at that. Henri, however, was a renowned sculptor and studied under Auguste Rodin, whose work you might already be familiar with. If not, he's considered the father of modern sculpture and was the artist behind The Thinker and many other sculptures, but The Thinker is the one that was most recognizable. Henri Marchand was more famous as a historic diorama and wax figure artist. He was employed by the New York State Museum of Albany before moving to Buffalo in 1925 to work at the Society of Natural Sciences, which is now known as the Buffalo Museum of Science. In fact, some of his work is still on display in the Wildflowers Wing. He was talented and like many sculptors of his day, studied the human form in the nude. His dioramas were known state and nationwide, and his star was rising even higher by 1930. 
The Marchands had a growing family, with Henri Jr. and Henriette making up the children in the happy home. All seemed to be going well at 576 Riley Street in Buffalo, New York. In spite of the Depression, this was a family, an immigrant family, on the rise. Tragedy would strike, though, as it often does in these stories. In another home, 25 miles away, in the Cattaraugus Reservation, was a young widow named Lila Jimerson. Lila had just lost her husband, Sassafras Charlie, a healer in the Cattaraugus tribe. She was convinced that someone had put a curse on her husband to kill him, and after being tortured with grief over his passing, she visited another healer, Nancy Bowen. Nancy was a 66-year-old herbalist and healer of the Cayuga tribe, and she agreed to consult a Ouija board to find out what had happened to Lila's husband, Sassafras Charlie, again, that really was his name, Sassafras Charlie. While using the board, the women tried to contact Charlie and ask him if he had been killed at all. He answered quickly and said he'd been cursed. Who killed you? They asked, and Charlie answered. Clotilde Marchand. Both women looked at each other because it was none other than the wife of Henri Marchand who would vacation on the reservation and was known to sculpt the women and scenery of all of the tribes. Lila knew exactly who she was, and with Nancy's help, she began hexing and cursing her to try and bring about Clotilde's death. They spent six long months doing this, with no results to speak of. At the end of six months, Lila was resolved on doing something about it, and went about convincing Nancy Bowen to help her. And before you ask, why would Nancy Bowen, a 66-year-old woman, agree to something like this? Not even just a 66-year-old woman, a 66-year-old healer and herbalist. But please understand, relations between the tribes and the American government were still extremely tense, and it was clear that the victor of the battles in the 1700s for land were the Americans. Bigotry and assimilation were still at a fever pitch, and even encouraged, not even just in Buffalo, but all over the country. Separation was still key. For Nancy Bowen, it was likely easy to believe that this white woman had killed Lila's husband, if not physically, then at least spiritually, which was just as important. She was born in 1864, when many of her people were being forced off of their lands and moved to, to territories in Ohio and Oklahoma. This does not, in any way, shape, or form, make her innocent, but it does give insight, which is what we're looking for here. So after she was convinced, Nancy and Lila walked five miles to the nearest trolley stop on their reservation and took the trolley into downtown Buffalo. Once at the Marchand address, they paced up and down the street, nervously looking at the home to see who was there. Once they'd ascertained that only Mrs. Marchand was there, Nancy walked up to the door and rang the doorbell. Clotilde Marchand answered, and Nancy asked if she could come in. Clotilde, being kind and inviting, said yes, 
and stopped at the foot of the stairs near the entrance to ask if she could get her some water. Then Nancy said, You, which? Which Clotilde may have answered yes to, though we'll never know. Immediately, Nancy struck her hard with a ten-cent hammer she and Lila had purchased in a shop on Jefferson Street on the way to the house. Clotilde struggled and tried to fight back as Nancy struck her again and again with the hammer. Finally, when Clotilde had gone down to make sure that she didn't survive the attack, Nancy soaked a rag with chloroform that Lila had bought for the murder that day just outside of the reservation. She stuffed this down Clotilde's throat and then left to meet Lila. Where was Lila during all of this? After all, it was her husband that Clotilde was apparently hexing. Well, that's an interesting question. And we're going to get to that here in a minute. Lila had parted ways with Nancy after she did the surveillance of the Marchand house and met her back up on Jefferson Street to catch the trolley back to the reservation. A few hours later, little Henri Marchand Jr. came home to find his mother's body crumpled and bleeding at the foot of the stairs. He thought she'd fallen, so he immediately ran outside screaming, and neighbors came to his assistance. It is the city of good neighbors. Police were called to the scene, and they immediately determined that this was no fall down the stairs. This was a murder. The chloroform rag and the bleeding lacerations to Nancy's head were clearly murder. Henri Marchand, senior, was called home from work, and the neighbors pointed out that they'd seen two Native women walking up and down the block around the time of the murder. And when they said that, he knew. He gave them Lila's name, and police went directly to her father's house to arrest her. Now, if you're asking yourself, because in my podcast you ask yourself a lot of questions, why would Henri have suspected Lila at all? Well, because he was sleeping with her, of course. So to answer that other question, once Lila, Nancy had left Lila to go to the Marchand home that day, she had called Henri from a payphone and asked him to go on a car ride with her. He complied and later told the court, and this is his words, specifically his words, Indians love a car ride. Uh, okay. All right. So how did these two meet? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Henri sculpted live nude models for his dioramas of life in the Haudenosaunee and the Onondaga nations. He at first found it difficult to get these women to pose nude. Then he decided that if he struck up a romantic relationship with them and slept with them, they would pose willingly and for free. One of the women he did this to, and yes, I'm saying did this to, because to him, this relationship was transactional, when he knew damn well it wasn't transactional to them. He knew that this was romantic for them. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was a dirtbag manipulator of the worst kind. Anyway, one of the women that he did do this to was Lila Jimerson. 
After the death of her husband, Sassafras Charlie, she lived with her father, Anson, in a longhouse. Henri had even sculpted Anson's home for one of his dioramas. So when the police asked him if he knew of any native women who would have reason to kill his wife, he led them directly to Anson's home. Lila then told the police that Nancy had been responsible for the murder. So Lila and Nancy both were brought in with the police and both were locked in jail until the details could be sorted out. Confessions from the two women came the next day and Buffalo's district attorney, Guy Moore, came in hot with the race card. He posited and told the press candidly that this was a, quote, Indian crime and that he would be seeking the death penalty for both women. Henri, he thought, was just a pawn in the case, the victim of conniving Indian women who jilted and hated the white man enough to kill his wife. In fact, suspicion on Henri's involvement didn't even land on him until nine days after the murder, when he was arrested as a material witness. Due to the press involvement on the case and Guy Moore's push to make it the case of the century, it went to trial within two weeks. I mean, could you possibly have enough evidence in two weeks? I don't think so. But, you know, because it was all about the uh, tribal involvement and none of the white involvement, during those two weeks, police searched the Cattaraugus Reservation relentlessly for the hammer that Nancy had used in the murder. The people of the reservation were subjected to constant scrutiny and searches of their personal property, whether they had anything to do with the crime or not. The tribe's chief, Ray Jemerson, tried to stop them, but was unsuccessful. The trial became a trial not only of the guilty women, but of the tribal nations in general. And then the Dooley letters came about. These letters were anonymously sent by some third party to Nancy to let her know that Clotilde was a white witch responsible for many native and white deaths. She had killed Charlie for selling herbal medicines that rivaled her own, and the next to die would be Lila. These letters helped the defense because they weren't in Lila's handwriting, and if they were from another jilted lover, we really never found out who, But they did support Lila and Nancy's defense going into trial that they killed Clotilde because they believed she was a witch who had killed Charlie's or killed Charlie, not because she thought that Henri would leave his wife for her. And when he didn't, she just got her out of the way. So those duly letters, though anonymous, took away the reasoning for Lila's having organized this whole thing. Instead of being out of jealousy, it was out of fear. Which, to me, no, it didn't. Those letters meant nothing. Those could have been written by a relative or anybody else. But I really, I don't know. I don't think so. I think Lila had a lot to do with it. But anyway, when Henri took the stand, it ended up making Lila and Nancy look a little bit better because he had no problem telling the court that he had slept with countless women, literally, so many that he could not count. He also said that because he couldn't get accurate depictions of their breasts without sleeping with them, that he did so out of professional necessity. He said, 
under oath. Sure. I slept with Lila and continued to do so up to the day his wife was murdered. But he said Clotilde knew about his lifestyle. They're French. They had an open marriage. She knew who he was. Why would he kill her? She let him do what he wanted to do. As for Lila, he didn't love her, but knew that she loved him, as did many women. So his testimony did not help him, but he wasn't on trial. It did prove that he was vile and sordid and manipulative, but that only destroyed his credit in the city. By the time Lila took the stand, she was ready to stand up for her own reputation. But as she was about to go and testify, she had some sort of cardiac or lung issue. She collapsed in court and was rushed to the hospital. There, it was determined that she was suffering from a lung hemorrhage. She thought she would be back in court in a few days and told the court so that she would come back and she would plead guilty. She was tired of standing trial. She was tired of dealing with this. She didn't want to go through the process of the extremely difficult press that called her all sorts of names and said that this is a crime of her people and not just her. So she couldn't do that. She was too sick. And by the time, one year later, that she was actually able to stand trial, she pled not guilty. Now, Henri Marchand, at this time, had moved, during that year, had moved to Albany, New York. And get this, ended up marrying his 18-year-old niece, and that is Clotilde's sister's daughter, ended up marrying her and had, was living in Albany at the time. So he wanted nothing to do with any of it, but it just further cemented things. And with him out of the way, she was kind of free. Like she said, she was not guilty. The court said that they couldn't figure out Mons Ray. I think that's how you say it. They couldn't figure out the mental um, cause, the the mental state she needed to be in to commit commit this crime. Even though I kind of can, it's kind of obvious now. But whatever, they couldn't, and they ended up acquitting her after one evening of deliberation. One week later, Nancy went to trial. Now, she got convicted of manslaughter. Oh my gosh, I just got reminded of some guy who, on the internet, he thought it was man's laughter. (laughs) No, I can't think of it as anything other than man's laughter. She got got, um, convicted of man's laughter. Anyway, she was convicted, but was let off with time served. And the two women went back to the Cataragas Reservation, basically heroes. Now, this is not a happy ending. It sounds like it is when you read all the stories about it. This is not a happy ending because Clotilde Marchand and her children, Henriette and Henri, did not get any sort of closure for this. In fact, Henriette had put up in 1930 an exhibition of her mother's paintings and said that she was a gifted artist that never had a chance. Lila Jemerson ended up marrying a local man and lived in Perrysburg, New York. She ended up dying in 1972. And Henri Marchand died in 1951. And I believe that Nancy later died. I want to say in the 60s. I'm not sure. It's hard to see where that is. But she ended up passing away as well. Everybody had a long life. Everybody except for Clotilde 
Marchand. And that is the story of the murder of Clotilde Marchand. I hope this has been educational and interesting and gives some sort of insight into 1930s Buffalo, New York. There were many stories in Buffalo that I could have chosen, but the twist of how this came about really got to me. Because let's face it, Lila was jealous, and she later admitted she was foolishly in love with Henri Marchand. And she probably did think that he would leave his wife for her. So she got her out of the way, and she used Nancy Bowen as a method of doing this. I do, in this story, give a lot of credit to the reasoning behind it, but a murder was still convicted. An innocent woman was still dead. Children were had their mother taken away from them. What she did is still very wrong, regardless of the reasoning that she had for it. And Henri was, yeah, just gross. Just gross. Anyway, if you like the show, if you want to hear more, please um, rate and review us. It helps me get found. And then, of course, when I put up the pictures, I do have pictures of all of these people. Um, comment on it. Like the post. Let me know. It's going to be on Instagram. That's at Historical Paranormal. I will be back soon with more stories. Thank you for listening. The Historical Paranormal Podcast is produced, written, and hosted by me, Krista Nichols. Krista Nichols.